This morning, uh, we wrap up the series, I Promise. We began with the promise that Jesus is coming again to rapture his church. And we're grateful for that, aren't we? We're grateful for that. In light of that, he's coming. Um, The reality is, is that when we die, we end up one or two places. As believers, we end up in heaven. And if we don't know Christ, we spend our eternities in hell. And today I want to take some, a moment and some time just to reflect on what is to come for us. And my hope is that you're encouraged and also challenged and maybe even taking a step back and saying, this is how I want to live my life from this point on. It's important that we remember that, that while heaven is a promise to us, God has encouraged us to live in such a fashion that when we prepare ourselves for that moment, it makes a difference. The Bible has a lot to say about heaven. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 13, 14. He says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking forward to the city to come. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind conceived the things prepared for those that love him. Paul would later say in Philippians 1.23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than this. There's this tension that we live with. If we're not careful, we get too attached to earth when what is to come is so much, so much better. However, as we prepare ourselves for heaven and the realities of heaven, God has always rewarded obedience So the way you live here will directly impact what you receive there with him. Paul would say to the, uh, in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, he said, For we all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's also this judgment that will take place for believers where you and I, post-Christ, post-salvation, and by the way, that means from the moment you receive Christ, and sometimes this gets lost in this whole conversation, when a child comes to Christ, the way that they've lived with Christ, from that point on impacts what they'll receive and give back to God in heaven in regards to rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us, you and me included, that know him, will be judged according to the things whether we've done good or bad. In context, we are judged for the things that we've done for him. Our sins aren't judged. That's the great white throne judgment for sinners. The judgment of deceit of Christ does not determine salvation. That's already been determined by the work on the cross and whether we've received or trusted in Jesus. But the judgment seat of Christ is what we've done for Christ since we've come to know him. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 as we go on this journey of heaven and the rewards that are to come. Philippians chapter 3 And we're going to read verses 20 to 21. I ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. But turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. And let's read this out loud together. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. Would you read with me? Ready, read. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You may have a seat. This week I buried one of our own family members here at Grace, or did his funeral, Dave Bateson, and he's with Jesus in Georgia We're grateful to have you with us this morning, Georgia, and we love you, and we're grateful to have the family with you too, but we know where Dave is at. He's with Jesus, and as I stood at that funeral, I reminded those that were there that his body is here, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and it's a promise that we have in Christ, but let me pull away and say this. We receive salvation by grace but we are rewarded through works. Works do matter. You don't earn your way to God, but once you come to Christ, your works matter. In fact, we're rewarded for our works when we stand before God. There will come a day when those of us who have a relationship with Jesus will have to stand before him, and yes, we will be judged for our works. The Bible tells us that. That salvation costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus his life. But following him should cost us everything. We should be willing to give all, even willing to die for him. God has always, and I'll repeat this throughout the message, and will always honor obedience. You and I will be pleasantly surprised by how much God rewards us. So how does he do that? It's a fire test. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. It's a fire test. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's trying to describe this judgment day and why it's important for us to live out our faith in front of him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, it says, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with what? What's the word? fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work if what has been built survives the builder will receive us believers a what what's it say a reward if it is burned up the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames our rewards will make it or they won't make it. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says that some rewards will be disqualified. I want to pull away and say this. That there are moments in life that, that we do things for God. God will throw all these in a fire test. And we say, God, I did this, I did that. He'll judge the motive, the intent. And there's even the possibility of those things that we've done with him because of what we've done post that, that we will suffer loss of those rewards. What I'm saying is this, it's important to continually chase Jesus. You won't lose your salvation, but you could suffer loss of rewards that were earned at another time. It is a fire test. The the, the reward or the prize has been disqualified because of the way you have lived even once you've done it. So the point is this, continually run after Jesus Continually seek him. Continually live for him. We will not be judged for our sins, but 
for our good deeds. I have mixed feelings of joy. And, and part of me wonders, will I stand before God and wish I would have done things differently? Absolutely yes. I believe every one of us will when we face the God that we love. Because all the years that we've lived for him, post-salvation, will flash in front of us. He'll throw all these things that we had the chance to do with the gifts and skills that we have, and they'll run through this fire test. And it says, what's left? And some of us basically will be as one just escaping through the flames. We make it to heaven based upon the works of Christ, but there's nothing to show for what our faith has done for us. So it's this picture that we will stand and be judged, and some of us will wish we would have lived differently. The Bible suggests that there will be a sense of remorse for many of us, wishing that we had lived differently for him. Yet there will not be sin, there will not be tears. Heaven is a place of utter joy, but it's this moment when we meet our creator God and we realize how much he truly loves us and we will wish we were all in for Jesus. Every believer will feel some remorse when approaching the holiness and love of Jesus. Why? When you stand before Jesus and you see his scarred hands, and when you understand the grace that he's given you and you're now experiencing the realities of heaven, all the feelings of love that you will feel in his complete holiness, we will be blown away by his grace and his salvation that he predestined from the foundation of the world and preordained for us to be saved, we will be blown away by incredible love. Unconditional love, that's all it is. And once you truly experience, I've often said this, if people who have passed on, who knew Jesus, and now are experiencing the realities of Christ, if they could come back, and they can't, and they can't speak to us, but if they could come back, I often say, they would come back and say, God really loves you. And if you could experience what I'm experiencing right now, the perfect holiness of God, you would live differently. I think that's what it'll be like when we stand before these scarred hands and we say, Jesus, you did that for me. We'll wish we would have taken our lives and been all in for him. We will be given rewards when we stand in front of him. In fact, we have a chance to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is why John says in 2 John chapter 1, there's only one chapter in verse 8. He says this, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell, one said. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. I read some incredible commentary on this this week, and I want to read it to you because the way they say this really captures what I just said. And these commentators said this. The Bible suggests that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ to a greater or lesser degree. 
depending on the measure of unfaithfulness of each individual believer. Therefore, it should be each believer's impelling desire to be well-pleasing to the Lord in all things. Although Christians apparently will reflect on this earthly life with some regret, they will also realize that what is ahead for them in the heavenly life. However, this latter realization will be the source of boundless joy. English, another commentator, says this, Joy will indeed be the predominant emotion of life with the Lord. But I suspect that when our works are made manifest at the tribunal, some grief will be mixed with joy, and we shall know shame as we suffer loss. But we will rejoice also as we realize that the rewards given will be another example of the grace of our Lord. For at best, we are unprofitable servants. The elements, the same author says, of remorse, regret, and shame cannot be avoided in an examination of the judgment seat of Christ. But this sorrow must be somewhat relative because even for the finest of Christians, there will be some things worthy of unceasing remorse in light of God's unapproachable holiness. So there is this picture that we wish we would have lived differently for him. All of us are excited. The way I see it is when I think about a graduation. When I walk to a graduation or have been part of a graduation for school, even I think of graduation, there's a picture that Anne has of me that she took 25, plus, 25 years ago at Grace Theological Seminary. I was graduated with an MDiv degree. And only by the grace of God and, and, the, and my wife and my family and their willingness to help me go through this, we're, it was a family celebration that day. But she has this picture of me, and I'm standing in line with the other graduates like, finally, we made it. 92 hours of graduate work. We made it by God's grace. And while I was excited to hear the name C, James Brown Jr., and I walked through the line and received this diploma, while that was exciting, there's also that peace when you graduate and of our minds and we graduate. Think, man, what if I would have given more? What if I didn't slack off? What if I could have done this or learned that? I think that's the picture of the great white throne judgment or the bema seat of God. Great white throne is for centered. But when we stand at the bema toss and, and stand at the judgment seat of Christ, I, I believe there would just be this point of, yes, we made it. Thank you, Jesus. But there would be this part of us that, in light of who you are and what you've done for me, I wish I would have done more for you. But here's the good news. You and I still have time. We are still alive. And we are breathing. And the way we live impacts the future. Matthew chapter 25, there's the parable of the talents or the parable of the gold bags. One man has five gold bags, another man has two, and one has one. And Jesus tells this parable, and he says, For the one that took the five gold bags and, and turned it into five, well done. And to the one that had two gold bags and talents or skills and abilities and turned it into two, well done. And to the one who said, 
had won and buried it in the ground. He said, but you are a hard master. And I was afraid that, that you would not reward me because so I was fearful of losing the gift that you've given me. And he says, not only will I take it away, but you will lose it. And he gives it to the man who has five bags. There is a sense that God always rewards the way we take the skills and abilities and gifts that he's given us. And by the way, they vary. Some of you are welders. Some of you are farmers. Some of you know how to sew. Some of you can sing. Some of you work on the assembly line. Some of you teach. Some of you artists. Some of you have a, a musical talent. Every talent that God has given us, he wants us to use that talent for him. And when we use it for his glory, he rewards us. Heaven offers more than comfort. It offers compensation. There is no reason to believe that we will all have the same gifts or talents or intellectual abilities on this side of earth. But what God has given us, he expects us to use it for his glory. Pull away and think about that. Pre-fall, before Genesis 3, not even post-fall, but pre-fall, Adam was bigger and stronger in a perfect world Eve was more beautiful and had sensitivities that Adam didn't. If you were to line Adam and Eve up before the fall, they were very different. Adam's build would have been different. His skill set would have been different from Eve's. Both are just as valuable, but they were different. And both had responsibility as we do to use it for God. We will be given crowns based upon how we use our gifts. Luke chapter 6, verses 21 to 23 reminds us to those that have been persecuted, to those, and, and Jesus goes on and said, even to those that left their families to serve him, you will be rewarded because you left family behind and you were faithful. There are five crowns that you and I receive before God. And I'm going to tell you what we do with those crowns in a moment. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's good to be reminded of these crowns. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What do we receive at this graduation or this, this rewards or awards ceremony? What can we receive there? 1 Corinthians 9 in verse 25 is the first crown, the incorruptible crown. It says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the what? What's it say? The prize. Everyone who competes in games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The incorruptible crown is a faithfulness award. It's saying, God, I remain faithful even when this was thrown at me. I remain faithful even when this person left me. I remain faithful even when everyone else wanted to do this. It's a picture of long, enduring faithfulness to God. Hear me out again. This begins the moment you come to Christ. It's not like you wait until your 40s. But it's this picture of self-control. It's this willingness to be disciplined to God. And by the way, self-control and discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. You have self-control. You have the discipline to physically be healthy. 
You have the discipline to be spiritually healthy. You have the discipline to be relationally healthy. And you have the discipline to be intellectually healthy. So we stand before God. God looks at all those components. Jesus grew in wisdom intellectually. Jesus grew in stature. He grew physically. Jesus grew in his relationship with others relationally. And Jesus grew in his relationship with God spiritually. It's a picture. God looks at those areas of our lives, all four of them, and he says, you have been faithful. You will receive the incorruptible crown. The second crown is the crown of life. Turn to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. It's another crown that we can receive. And I'll show you in a second what we do with these crowns. John writes on the island of Patmos in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. This is for those who have lived a martyr's life, who have been persecuted, and in doing so, have a sweet Christian spirit. It's the faithful unto death as a witness for Christ, even in the face of death. The third crown is called the crown of glory. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and look at verses 2 through 4. 1 Peter 5 and verses 2 through 4. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. Verses two through four says this. Be shepherds of God's flock that, are, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to what? What's it say? Serve, eager to serve. It means someone's not keep coming after you and say, hey, will you, will you sign up here and serve? It says eager to serve. You come and say, sign me up. Then it says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will what? What's it say? Never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's a shepherd's crown, an elder's crown. It's for those that have given their lives to teaching the word of God. Let me pull away and say something. It's just as important to teach children as it is adults. Hear me out. And so those of you who have been eager to serve, not begrudgingly, like, oh, okay, I'll sign up. No, it's an eagerness to serve to those that have been entrusted to you. It's to the shepherd as he expounds the word. It's to the dad that has faithfully and the mom that has faithfully daily taught their children. It's a hunger and desire to teach God's word, and listen to me, and to follow through with God's word. And hear me out. We also know this from Matthew 25. God has gifted us all uniquely differently. And some of us, he's given the gift of teaching. 
And if we don't use that gift, it will be taken from us. And the reality is, if it's taken from you, then how can you serve God with it and be rewarded for it? It's teaching the word of God to those around you. So every time I think about children's volunteers, I think, praise God for those who are eager to serve, willing to serve. Praise God for small group leaders who are eager to serve and teach God's word to those that have been entrusted. Praise God for remarkable women's ministry, women who are eager to serve and teach. Praise God for fight club leaders who are eager to serve and not being pulled and yanked in. Yeah, I'll do it. It's an eagerness to. And when we do, we're rewarded for that. The next crown is the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says this to the young Timothy who wanted to be a preacher. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8 says this. Now there is in store for me the crown of what? What's it say? Righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, at the bimatos, we would say, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It's for those who are inspired or excited or encouraged for the imminent return of Christ and who have lived a very righteous life and who daily say, come Lord Jesus Maranatha. Have you ever been around someone who longs for the appearing of Jesus? There's this sense. You see, when you long for it, what happens to you? You begin to tell people about Jesus. You cannot long and not want others to know. It's this sense where you're telling others about Jesus is coming. Be prepared. Today could be the day. It's this longing for Maranatha. Through my lifetime, I've run into those people and they're such a joy. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The last crown that we see is found in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. You can look at it. But it's the crown of rejoicing. It's what we would say is the soul winner's crown. It's given to the person who has devoted their lives to evangelism, leading people to Jesus. It's the person that you're with and you might be with them in public and all of a sudden they're over here talking to someone about Jesus. It's the person who has a longing to tell the world through social media that they need Jesus. It's your mom or dad, brother or sister, uncle or aunt, your child and even that, that longs and not only longs but you, you, you hear them. God gave me the opportunity last week to lead someone to Christ. It's just like everywhere there's talking. It's just longing and desire to tell people about Jesus. God rewards those with the crown of rejoicing. So what do we do with these rewards then? Why are these important? It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. (laughs) We'll look at Revelation chapter 4. Here's what we do with these these rewards. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. Here's what happens at this, we would say, this graduation or this testing of our our, our good deeds. 
what happens. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. John on the island of Patmos has this vision of heaven. And he sees this. Revelation 4 and verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, Jesus. And they do what? What's it say? Worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their what? What's the word? Crowns before the throne and say, Jesus, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You and I will have this fire test and everything that we've ever done post-salvation. For me, as a four and a half year old boy, I'll be 59 in January. 54 and a half years of my life will be thrown into this fire. And what comes out of that, whatever makes it through, what some of us, it says, will just escape as through the flames. We'll have nothing to show other than praise God than the grace of Jesus on the cross. And that's incredible. But we'll have something to show. And in turn, we lay it back at Jesus. We take these rewards and awards and say, Jesus, this is for you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you want to lay something at Jesus' feet? How many of you want to? Amen. But how do you do it? It's by living a life of faithfulness. I don't want to go before Jesus and say, Jesus, I loved you this much. No, Jesus, I am so grateful for salvation by grace through faith. I am a change person forever and in light of what you've done for me this is for you you see salvation is not by works but rewards are by our works so when you think about heaven what will we do there through the years and and honestly I've heard this if I haven't heard it one time I've heard it a hundred times pastor Jim please tell me And they say this, I don't say this because out of disrespect, but tell me heaven's going to be more than 24-7 of singing. Like, I don't say this disrespectfully, Pastor Jim, but that sounds boring to me. Is that all we'll do, just bow down and sing? Like, won't there be responsibilities? Won't we use gifts? And what will happen in heaven? The answer to that, yes, there will be worship in heaven. The narrow view, we won't be doing it 24-7 as we understand it. But the broad view is, yes, we were created to worship God in everything. And while you'll be building cabinets in heaven, yes, some of you will be doing that. And while you'll be writing a new song, yes, some of you will be writing music in heaven. And while some of you will be hiking some mountains like you've never seen before, yes, some of you will be doing that. And while some of you will be cooking a meal, yes, some of you will be cooking a meal in heaven. And while you're having a conversation with a friend that has passed on and you haven't seen in a long time, we can do all that and worship God there and we can do it now. Worship is 24-7. It's everything we do with him. We were created to worship God and we will continue to. So what will we do in heaven? Revelation 7, verse 15. Here it is. Here's what we'll do in heaven. 
You want to know what we're going to do in heaven? Turn to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. John has this vision of, of heaven on the island of Patmos, and he says this in Revelation 7 and verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and what him? What's it say? Serve him. How long? Day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We're going to serve. Hear me out. You and I are going to work in heaven using our redeemed gifts and abilities. We will serve God in heaven. And yes, we will work for him there. We'll have new bodies in heaven. This which was incorruptible or corruptible will become incorruptible. We will be as he is. And so this broken body that you and I have on this side will be a redeemed new body in heaven. Picture this if you can. The most beautiful body that you see today is under the curse. I think Adam and Eve would have taken our breath away. I think Eve would have taken my breath away. And Adam might have taken your breath away, ladies, because of their beauty. We don't even know what real beauty is. But we will have perfect beauty in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 says that racial identities will continue. Tribes and nations will be in heaven. Every tribe and every nation will be in heaven. Often the question is asked is this, will we rest in heaven? Will a perfect body be tired? God's original design was a day of rest. Isn't that what Genesis 2-2 says before the fall? So yes, there will be moments that we will rest. Revelation 14 and verse 3 said there's a special place for those that keep themselves even pure on earth, that they'll sing a new song that only they know. I love that. Revelation 14, 3. Let me just speak to those of you who aren't married yet. The Bible says this, that if you remained a virgin and God raptures you, it says that there's a special group of you in heaven that will only know a song that no one else knows because you were willing to remain pure with your God. That's a gift, especially in our world. Revelation 14 and verse 3. Hebrews 4.11 says, make every effort to enter that rest. How about this question? Will there be sleep in heaven? Some people argue that we won't sleep because we'll have perfect bodies. But the same argument could be made for eating. Why did Jesus eat after post-resurrection? Why was Jesus eating food after the resurrection, if he was in a perfected body. The same argument could be made for that. If A is true and B is true, then A plus B is C. That's a syllogism in logic. So yes, we will sleep. Adam and Eve were created beings perfect. Did they sleep? I would say presumably so. Sleep cannot be imperfection. What's more restful than a good night's rest? Anybody? Sleep is one of life's great pleasures. Troubled sleep and restlessness are part of the curse. But sleep is a gift. In fact, Psalm says God grants sleep to those he loves. 
So I believe we will rest and we will sleep. Some people think that there will not be fatigue. Why not? Couldn't resources be depleted and renewed in this infinite world? Just as they were in Eden? How about will we work? The idea of working seems foreign to many people. But someone has to care for the new earth and the new heaven, don't we? I believe those of you who are heavy equipment operators, you'll be pushing dirt in heaven. Why not? Why not continue to do what you're doing here in a perfected way? Adam was, was supposed to work the soil. It didn't just work itself. He wanted Adam to work the soil. Adam's original job included work, Genesis 2.15. It was part of the original plan for man. God himself is a worker. Work wasn't part of the curse, but those daggone weeds are. Can't wait. We get to heaven. I believe you'll plant gardens and I'll plant a garden. I cannot imagine. I, I, I very much enjoy working in the soil. I, I love going out and planting crops and then harvesting them. And then and in some ways I think they taste better. I don't know that they do. Maybe it's just because I planted them. I don't know. But there's something about that. But there won't be any weeds to have to run the tiller and pool. Because, but it will require us to plant and work, just like Adam did. John 5, 17 says that the Father is still working. Why is God working in a perfected way? Consider Matthew 25 parable that I talked about. When the faithful servant enters heaven, he is not offered retirement, but the ruler over things. Hear me out, hear me out. There will not be retirement in heaven. Why? Because as there, it was before the fall, Adam was supposed to work the land. And in a perfected way, mechanics will continue to work. Musicians will continue to create music. People who make food and chefs will continue to, to cook food. All the things that we do on this side will now be in the perfected fashion. But let me tell you this. There won't be any evangelists in heaven because we're all saved. There won't be a need for a doctor. You're going to have to find a new profession. I'm sorry. Because everyone is healed. God always honors obedience. So what you do here will impact what you're in charge of there. I love this thought because in our world, we platform people who are public people and say, look what they did. I believe when we get to heaven, there will be people that we don't even know who have given to the church, who have served the church, who have been prayer intercessors, who have labored in pain night and day for our world and revival. And God will platform them in such a way and they will rule over segments of heaven and we will be grateful for their leadership. He always honors faithfulness. Some have asked this, will we have our own homes in heaven? Isn't that what John 14, 2 says? That God is going to prepare a place for us I'd like to revert back to the Texas Receptus and the King James for this one. He's, he's built mansions in heavens for us. Yes, we will have homes. I believe we'll share lodging with neighbors and, and family. Yeah, come over. Let's eat together. Let's talk about the realities. Isn't it good to know Jesus? 
We'll be grateful. Like, we made it. Praise God. Let's have a hallelujah dance. I believe relationships between married people will continue too. People have asked me this, will there be marriage in heaven? Matthew 22, verses 28 to 30 says, no, there will not be marriage in heaven. But nothing will take away the fact for me personally of the relationship I have with my precious bride, Anne, of 32 years. We both will be married to Jesus, and I rejoice for Anne and for you that we will be married to the most wonderful person on the universe. However, think this through. Jesus said that the institution of marriage will end, but never hinted that deep relationships between married people would end. God will make this marriage far better, never worse. God doesn't replace his original creation with something less. When he replaces it, it gets better, and it'll be better than what you have now. So my mind is blown away by how can my marriage be better than it is now? God has a plan. It will be much better. It won't be worse. Hear me out. What about children? What we know are children. Will we know our grandchildren? I ponder that thought because, man, I, I love our kids. Josh and Hannah and Isaiah and our son-in-law, Johnny. We have a great relationship with each other. And I think, man, God, I, those are the closest people on planet Earth to me. Will it still be the same? There's reason to believe that we won't, we won't pick right up where we are on earth with our children. There's no reason not to believe that. But we will gain many new ones, and we will have times that will say, did you ever imagine that heaven could be so wonderful? You see, the doctrine of continuity is an important discussion for all this. And let me just pull away. It's a theological term. But the doctrine of continuity says this, what God began and intended here before the fall on earth will be realized and continued in eternity in a perfect way. So what you do here, pre and even post, will now happen there. And so whatever ongoing relationships you have, the doctrine of continuity says it will continue in a perfected way. How about will all people be equal? All people are equal in worth, but they differ in gifting and performance. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 20 says we have eyes and feet and ears and it takes the whole body, but all of us function differently to make one. I think that will continue. It seems illogical to assume that everyone in heaven will have equal skill. Or to be able, seriously, imagine everyone in heaven taking a football and be able to throw it 70 yards downfield. I don't think we'll have the same skill sets. Adam didn't have the same skill set as Eve. Eve didn't have the same skill set as Adam. They were different, and God's original design was for different skill. But he wanted it to be used in a perfect way. In the perfect world, Adam was bigger and stronger than Eve. Eve had beauty that Adam didn't have. Scripture is clear that we'll have rewards and positions in heaven according to our faithful service in this life. But seriously, do you think 
heaven? Do you think we will be able to do less in heaven than we do on earth? Do you think we will be greater fools in heaven than on earth? Certainly, we will have more. People have asked me this question. Will I be able to recognize people? Hear me out. Not only recognize, you'll remember their name. Praise God. <laughs> like that in itself. Like I want to get to heaven for that. Will we continue to learn in heaven? Yes. And why? Why, Pastor Jim? How do you know that? Well, my Bible tells me that only God is omniscient. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 says, There are riches of his glory that will be revealed about his incomparable grace that's offered to us. We continually learn more about our God. Do you think Adam knew how to make rockets when he was in the garden? Absolutely not. But can he continue to learn? Why won't we continue to learn new things about our God? Yes, we will continue to learn. Only God knows all. Will there be different weather in heaven? I just want you to think about what is your perfect weather day. That will be in heaven. And hear me out. There might be rain. There can be sunshine. And hear me out. I believe there will be snow in the higher elevations of heaven. So be prepared, people. Be prepared. Snow is not part of the curse. Ezekiel chapter 34 says that trees will bloom and yield fruit. I always like to discuss this when I think about heaven because it's such a a big part of our world. Will there be sports in heaven? Do you think it's possible for sinless people to invent sports? Certainly. Sports are inherently sinful. And some would say we couldn't have sports because competition brings out the worst in people. Hear me out. There won't be any worse than us to be brought out. (laughs) Then people say this. Well, Pastor Jim, someone's got to lose. And in heaven, no one can lose. Can they, Pastor Jim? Says who? Losing a game isn't evil. It's not part of the curse. To say that everyone would have to win in heaven underestimates the nature of the resurrected body. And hear me out. And by the way, God will not give participation trophies to those that lose. (laughs) Jesus' name, amen, go home. Here's what I know. Let's sum this up because this is good. The promise of heaven should change the way we live on earth. We should stop being depressed about aging, okay? (laughs) Like sometimes I see that, you know, as I age, I deal with all the stuff that people do with aging. And people are so worried about, oh, look at my wrinkles. And I got more hair in my ears than I do on my head. So what? Or look at my arms. Can you see I got the muscle on the bottom and not on the top? It's the aging process, people. Guess what? It's okay. It's okay. But why? Because one day we will have a redeemed body and the best is yet to come. Get over it, okay? 
another truth that should change the way we live. We should teach our kids to look forward to heaven. Can I ask you a really personal question? When's the last time you had a conversation with your child or grandchild about the realities of heaven? Do your children say the word Maranatha? Are your children excited about what is to come? Have you sat down with them and expressed the realities of heaven so that when their grandpa dies, yes, they're sad, but they rejoice because they know and they've been taught by you, grandpa and grandma and dad and mom and brother and sister that, listen, when someone knows Christ, they are now experiencing the realities of heaven. How often do parents even talk about heaven with their kids? We should. Like right now, if I pulled your kids up and say, tell me what you know about heaven from mom and dad, what would they rattle off? Thirdly, we should hold loosely to the, all the possessions we have on earth because we can't take them with us. And lastly, we should live worry-free lives because our God is in full control and he has an incredible gift coming to us called heaven and he promised to come and take us to be with him. Oh, Lord... Help us not to spend our lives worrying and holding on to people and things. And, but Lord, we know that one day we will be with you. And because of that, it should change the way we live on earth. Because one day we will experience what we have longed for. Incredible love. A God who gave his only son to die for us, and we will experience the realities of heaven. One day, you're coming back, Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.